You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So I'm going to kind of lay out where we're going a little bit before we jump in. Um, So because there's so many things I could focus on, and just to like list a few, is we could take all the commandments one by one and study those like we're doing on Sundays. Um, I could talk about all of the different laws that come after the Ten Commandments and work through all of our questions on why we shouldn't have oxes that gore people or do a goat in the mother's milk. And we could take that route and go through all of them. We're not going to tonight. Um, There's also um, just so many things we could work through. Um, We could also take time to talk about what do each of the Ten Commandments mean? What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? What does the law mean for us today? There's just so many things that we could dive into here. Um, And so I've chose those kind of things that I just mentioned. That's not the route we're going to go tonight. The reasons behind that is because our pastors are working through the Ten Commandments. They've worked through kind of some of the topics that come in those commandments after the Ten Commandments. So slavery in the Bible, women in the Bible, um, killing. Those are all kind of things that our pastors have done sermons on. And so I'm going to leave that up to us to go back and listen or to study on. And so just kind of know that since that information is out here, I'm going to bypass that to be able to give us some more meet in a different direction. Um, And so what I will focus on tonight, since we're journeying through the whole book of Exodus, is try to place this kind of story in the narrative of Exodus and try to place it and give it meaning within the whole kind of thing. Um, And I think from that, we'll be able to figure out why it matters and what it shows about God and kind of see what God is doing in this section of scripture. Um, So That's kind of the intro of where we're going, what we're not going to focus on, what we are going to focus on. And so we do have a whiteboard tonight. This is actually a lot cleaner than when I got it. So be surprised by that. (laughs) We had some friends that helped me clean it. So I was thankful for that. Um, But before we jump into this, so you can probably see that it's Exodus 19 through 24 instead of Exodus 20 through 24. And so after studying it, I actually switched it. So in the Exodus for you, he breaks it up in 20 to 24, which is totally fine. Um, But I found that it actually has a um, literary structure to it that helps us to define its meaning. And so just decided that it was more helpful to also add chapter 19 into it. And so um, we're going to kind of walk through this structure, and this will help us to understand where um, Moses is going in it and what he wants us to see about who we are and about who God is. Um, And so thankfully, Malia covered chapter 19 last week. And so I'm going to try to like go a little more speedy through the first one um, since we kind of went through that last week. Um, But some things that I need you to know um, is that um, in historical narrative, we've talked a lot about um, studying the Bible in its genre and how important that is. Um, because if you know how to interpret historical narrative, you'll be able to pick up on why facts are listed, character development, the structure of um, the literature, and that helps us in meaning. And so um, looking at the chiastic structure, that's a big word, a literary word. Chiastic basically just means that there is a structure to it that is meant to be there so that you can find meaning in it. And so chiastic structure can look like 
a stair stepper. It can look like circular. So a lot of the Psalms and poetry are like circular or they have one line and then two lines of like explanation. And so the structure kind of helps us to see what the author's trying to do. And so this section of scripture has a chiastic structure. Um, and so this one is one that is a pattern of like mirrors. And so I'm not a literary like guru, so just know that. <laughs> um, but it is helpful to understand this. So the pattern is A, B, C, B, A. So A mirrors A, B mirrors B, and C is like the standalone separate. Um, I heard a really helpful analogy from the Bible Project to imagine it as a hamburger meat. And so you have the bun and the bun, which are the bookends. Then you have the meat and the meat, which are the two laws. And then you have the cheese, which is like the central thing. They described it as smelly cheese because we'll see that this key piece shows us a lot about who we are. Um, but how God works <laughs> in all of it. <laughs> so this is the chiastic structure, and we'll see that um, it goes narrative, pauses for a law, narrative, pauses for more laws, and then ends with a narrative. Um, and so we'll see what God is doing and how Moses wrote this so that we can see what is happening. Um, so here, an another couple things to note about where we are in Exodus is that um, we are at Mount Sinai where the law is given. So the laws that are included here are not the sum total of God's law, but he does give all of his laws here at Mount Sinai. So there's a total of 613 laws that God gives at Mount Sinai. Um, here we only see 52, 10 commandments, and then 42 in this second meat section. Um, and so basically this is a span of one year that they spend at Mount Sinai um, as God is revealing himself through the laws. Um, and so we see that a lot happens within the span of the year. And so all of the book of Leviticus through Numbers chapter 10 is what is being covered at Mount Sinai. Um, so uh, Leviticus is like the fuller book of the law, right? It lists all of the rest of the 613 laws um, and numbers as well. And so that's kind of like the timeline of the Bible, if that makes sense. So um, that's where it was written. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and so this structure will help us as we go. Um, and so as I kind of like teach through it, I'll be referring back to this to kind of show us how this structure helps us to um, work through. The other thing that's important to know about this section of scripture, 19 through 24, is that, and a lot of times in historical narrative, like we found in chapter 18 and 19, is that it doesn't happen in a linear timeline. So it's not like, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It works a lot like, have you guys ever seen the TV show, This Is Us? So they tell a story by they start in one place and then they do a flashback and add more detail. Then they'll do a flash forward and add more detail to the story. That's kind of what is happening in this section of scripture. And so we have a lot of like back and forth and flashbacks. And so as you read chapter 19 through 24, you kind of have to remember that as you're reading it is that there's like 
a summary, and then it'll flash back and give more detail to this. And so you kind of have to follow the literature as it goes. And so just kind of know that. I personally am still working it out, like reading it and being like, okay, this is a flashback. And so you don't want to get too caught up in that, but you have to be aware of it and you can take meaning from it without knowing exactly how it's laid out. But that's just like a helpful thing to understand. So we're going to jump into Exodus 19. I'll try to go a little more speedy through this um, since we did it last week. Um, but to kind of summarize where we've been, um, God in verse um, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here we see God declaring what he's going to do. So we were kind of discussing in our um, discussion group that God not only has made them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, but is making them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so just like our salvation, God makes us a treasured possession. He saves us. He places us in a judicial sense but he is progressively making us more into his image. That's what's happening here. It's God is declaring what he's doing to his people, but he's also sanctifying them and making them into um, what he has told them that they will be. And so part of that is through almost like you can kind of see this as like um, a marriage ceremony. They're kind of like putting the vows out here. God is saying, this is, this is the covenant that I'm making with you. These are the things that you have to abide by in order to have a relationship with me, a covenant relationship with me. And so in chapter 19, that's kind of how it starts. He says he's making a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so then we see that Moses goes up and down the mountain a lot. <laughs> he goes up and down seven times. And so we see seven in the Bible as being like a whole or complete number. Um, and so I don't know how symbolic that number is here, but we do see Moses, we'll kind of see him throughout this chapter as being our the mediator of Israel. And we'll see how he is a type of Christ, the priest, the mediator that Christ is. And so I think what this is trying to tell us is that Moses as their mediator um, was a whole complete mediator. Um, not fully, obviously, because Jesus will have that role one day. Um, but so that's kind of what we see in 19 is that it's kind of showing us um, how God will make them a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And so basically we see in this first kind of bun that the covenant is offered, like that God comes to the mountain, he says, I'm doing this. These are the terms of the covenant. Um, and so it's offered before the people and the people say, I do, that they will. Um, and then um, it also states that he comes in a thunder thick cloud through Moses um, and that Moses then goes down to prepare the people for the marriage covenant. So obviously it doesn't ever say marriage covenant, but it's like kind of can be a helpful understanding of like what's happening here at Mount Sinai is that there's this relationship that's being bridged between God and the Israelites and Moses is that mediator. And it sounds a lot like a relationship that we have with God. Um, and so you can kind of think about it this way. I think from chapter 19, two points that we need to make sure we remember before getting into the rest of this is we can get those in verse 12 and 13, and I'll just read those real quick. Um, they're kind of a little bit what it feels like as contradictory. So just read with me. It says, 
And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up onto the mountain or up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And so here we see two things. God invites the people to come up and that God's holy and they can't come up. And so we have these two things like warring against each other. God's holiness and yet his desire to be close to his people. And so we see that kind of where God will say, you can't come up, but also come up. So he beckons us close because of his love and his relational closeness and yet his holy keep, holiness keeps us at a distance. And so we're seeing this kind of at war in this chapter. And so keeping that in mind, um, the narrative also says in chapter 19 that the trumpet has been blown. Um, and so the trumpet um, can also be the meaning of like, I think they use it sometimes to be like this game time. So just kind of keep that in your mind as we keep going, that the trumpet call was God's call to like, come. So think about that and keep that kind of tucked in your mind. Um, and so then we also see in chapter 19 that the sound of the trumpet, so we kind of see that it gets like, um, it does the kind of what I was talking about, is how it gives like a little bit and then it gives more detail, a little bit. And so we see first the trumpet was loud and then later on we see that it got louder and louder. And so we see that this, the narrative is like progressively getting more and more detail as we go. And so we know that God is going to rain down on Mount Sinai with thunder, that there's going to be a trumpet, that the people have to be consecrated before they go up. Um, and so, and then we have this dilemma between God's holiness and his relational closeness. Um, and so that's kind of where we end in chapter 19 is just this like um, God's desire for relational closeness with his people, yet his holiness that he'll come down to the mountain um, and that then another verse I wanted to point out in 19 before we move on um, is that in verse 17, it says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. So this is on the third morning after they've consecrated themselves and are ready to go up on the mountain. He says, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They took their stand. They stopped. They would not go any further. And this is where it says that the Lord had descended on Sinai, as a fire. We have seen God as a fire before on Mount Sinai, and he was a fire that did not consume the bush. So this is when the narrative stops. So we've kind of seen a summary of what is kind of happening on Mount Sinai. We stop, and then we receive the Ten Commandments. And so here it stops, and I think the timeline is that when it says in verse... Um, sorry, I'm getting my notes all mixed up. Um, in verse 19, Moses spoke and God answered him. That, that thunder was when the Ten Commandments were given. So like Moses spoke, God responded with God's law. And so that's when we see the Ten Commandments. So in this section, this is where we see the laws in general is kind of how I wanted to split it up because these are kind of the Ten Commandments here. Um, are 
the almost like setup or introduction to all of God's 613 laws that he's going to give. And so they're, I wouldn't necessarily say a summary, but they are what sets the tone for what is to come. And so um, that's what's important about the first 10 is that they set the tone for what is to come and how the people should live as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests. Um, one thing to note about the Ten Commandments is that it is given to a specific people at a specific time. And so although we aren't going to talk about what that looks like for us today and how the law applies to us today, we do have to understand that it was given to a specific people at a specific time um, in the nation of Israel. Um, and so this is kind of when God is speaking his side of the vows. Like this is what it requires to be in a relationship with me. And so I'm going to Actually, I'm going to ask you guys, can anyone say all 10? Or do you think we could do a group effort and say all 10? Group effort. Group effort? Okay, okay, let's see. Can you pull your resources? Let's see if we can get all 10. Because I had to practice multiple times. Okay. I know. <laughs> I was like, we looked like Okay, number one. Uh-huh. No, I was. Yep. Bane. Uh-huh. Sabbath. Uh huh. Um, murder. Mm -hmm. And then adultery. Steals. False witness. Covet. Good. Very nice. Well done, friends. I'll tell our pastors. They will be proud. Um, Bible trivia in the middle of Bible study. Um, okay, so we don't have time to like really give a definition of all of these, but what I am going to do is just walk through and just give like a simple sentence of explanation that I think will help us reframe maybe any ideas that we might have had about them um, and then tell you to go listen to what the sermon series if you haven't. <laughs> if you haven't been there on Sunday. Um, okay, so number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So this is not just like, um, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not like you have a line of gods and God is the first God. It's God, there is no other gods but God, that he alone is God. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The reason why this is so important is that God has already done this. He has already made us in his image. If we were to make something else in our image, it would be a tree or a calf. That's to come later. Interesting. So we don't need to make anything else in um uh, we don't need to make a carved image of God um, because he's already done that in us. Um, three, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. This is not just saying God's name in a dishonorable fashion, but it is actually referring back to this idea of the kingdom of priests, that they are to take who God is, his character, and show that to the nations. And so it takes on a different form than just saying God's name in a dishonorable way, but it's how do we present ourselves as a way to show who God is to the others around us. Remember the Sabbath, this is to remind us that we are not God, that we have limits. Um, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother like you would honor your heavenly father who gave you life. Six, you shall not murder, um, that you cannot take life in your own hands. That is up to God. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery because you follow a God who does not commit adultery, that he's a covenant-keeping God. Look at the amount of times that he has kept with Israel despite their lack of covenant-keeping. Eight, you shall not steal. Um, I Some of these, which was helpful, I like 
paused for a moment and I thought, what would be the reverse of the like not? If it wasn't, like what would you do instead? Like instead of the not, I don't know, like instead of stealing, what would you do? Give generously. Um, and so that was kind of helpful for me um, to think through. You should not bear false witness. Um, and then you shall not covet. Covet as in you shall not desire your neighbor's um, anything. So that's in that like desire comes upon you. Um, and so those are the Ten Commandments. I wish we could have time to go through all of them because it would be awesome, but I will not do that today. So then we get to the next part of the narrative. So this is where it kind of pauses, and this is actually a flashback to what is happening in 19. And so this right here, I put it as like our key piece because I think what is happening here is that the narrative have paused, so we see that it's not like continuing on in time, and it's an explanation of the previous section in chapter 19. Um, and so it's helping show, I'm actually gonna read it real quick before I get kind of more, it was hard because I was like, I can't read this whole section. <laughs> it would take us the entire 30 minutes and I still preach. Um, sorry, just a second while I find my, okay. Yes, okay, so verse 18 in chapter 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let us speak to, do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And so we see that this is an explanation, I think, of verse 17 that, that I had said before, where they stood, they make their stance at the bottom of the mountain, and they're like, I will go no further. And so here is a more explanation of where um, that is happening. And so we see that God has descended upon the mountain, that the people are trembling, they are afraid, and that they stood far off. And so we don't know how far off that was, but they were too afraid to get near to God, even though God has been beckoning them to come. It reminds me of the echoes of the garden when Adam and Eve had sinned and God beckoned them and they were ashamed and they knew what they had done. Um, and so here we see that Moses then says to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so here we see that it's a test that God had beckoned them to come to him and that they had refused, but God had beckoned them knowing that he would provide a way to make that relationship possible. And they failed at the test um, and they do not go further. They do not go onto the mountain as God had commanded um, because they were afraid that they might die. I would also be afraid <laughs> if the whole mountain was shaking and there was thunder, like, we were talking about this in our discussion group, but like, I think sometimes it's easy to be like, forget what's actually going on. Like, just like think about that being at the bottom of the mountain and the mountain shaking. Like, I, like it's like probably like a volcano. I don't know. That's the only thing I can like think of, you know, and just how terrified they might be. They literally thought they would die in the presence of God. That's literally what they thought. That's why they wouldn't go further. And yet they didn't trust God for what he was promising to do. Like, if we think back to what he said he was going to promise to, he was making a nation that would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation before him, and that they would have a relationship, a covenant relationship with them. And so the people were not trusting them, 
trusting God for what he was asking, and yet um, that he was going to make a way. But I think why this is the key passage is, although they failed, what happens at the end of this? It says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We'll see in chapter 24 that even though the people failed because of their fear, that God provided a mediator through Moses to still make that covenant relationship a possibility. And so even when the people decided to be stinky cheese and not go towards God, that God provided a way that they might still have a covenant relationship. And so I think even the chiastic structure here is helping us see that the covenant was offered, the people failed, and yet later in chapter 24, we'll see that it's accepted. Um, and so that's why that stinky cheese little piece is such a key piece to know that God, that we fail, but God still continues with his covenant and makes a way. And so we see Moses as the mediator. He steps up and he will walk through and into the fiery presence of the Lord. We'll talk more about this later, but it's interesting to me that at the burning bush when Moses was first seeing God, that it was not consuming the bush. And then in 24, if you may note of this, that it says that God's presence was an all-consuming fire or a devouring fire. And I think that's an interesting piece to think about in the idea of purification and Moses as a mediator, as Christ as our mediator. So we'll talk more about that later. Then next we see that it skips back to a meet. We see law specific. And so I think here is where we see the first 10 applied in a more specific way. And so this is where we'll see that the laws that were given, the 42 after this, that were given were very specific for that time period. And so we'll see that God was helping to work that out in their culture. This has nothing to do with teaching. I just thought it was a really fun fact that some of these laws that are listed, there's about a dozen that are actually in the Hammurabi, is it Hammurabi? Hammurabi, how say? Babylonian ancient legal code, which is really cool. So like even the world <laughs> agrees with some of these. But I think it also actually goes back to even what we were studying with Jethro and how the nations can come and that God's truth is God's truth, whether it's from the nations or whether it's from God himself, that his truth um, is his truth. So that's the one random thing, but I thought it was really fascinating to me. Um, and so, um, sorry, I lost my place for a second. Um, okay, the other thing I wanted to point out about these laws that are specific is that um, these laws, there's obviously, there's 613 total given by God at Mount Sinai. Only 42 of them are chosen here to be added to the book of Exodus. And so I think that is like, what, why? Like, why, why these 42? Um, and I think, obviously, we don't have time to go through all 42 and why those ones were chosen. But I think it is to show us examples specifically of how God's law might um, go to a certain circumstance. So I think even back to chapter 18, right, when we're talking about Jethro and how it was broken up and Moses was judging the people, that came after this had happened. And so it's likely that these things were the things that Moses was judging or dealing with, you know? And so this is like the application of the law to that specific thing. So um, I think that's just a helpful. 
Um, the other thing I wanted to point out is that we can see that the laws are broken up into like two main categories. Um, the laws of restitution and the laws of jubilee. And so the laws of restitution, two things to point out underneath those, um, is that there's always a restitution of what is lost and then a punishment that's equal to the harm intended. And so we see God's justice in these laws that um, if something was taken, then like, I think there's one on grain, like if some, if like all your grain is taken by an ox or something like that, then all that grain needs to be given back. And then same with the punishment, like the punishment is equal to whatever it is. I think you see God's justice in that. Um, and then we see that in Christ, that Jesus not only pays the punishment for our sin, but then he lives the life that we could not live. Um, on our behalf. And so um, in the Exodus for You book, I wanted to read just a little section. I thought it was really helpful. It says, it is significant that the laws of restitution in chapter 21, 12 through 23, 9 are preceded and followed by the laws of Jubilee. 21, 1 through 11 makes provision for the slaves to be liberated, just as Israel had been liber liberated from slavery by God. 23, 10 through 13 makes provision for the rest of the land and for workers. This is no accident. The restitution and punishment paid by Christ on the cross produces liberation and rest for his people. So I just thought that was like a helpful understanding of kind of what these laws are doing um, and how it's showing us Jesus's justice um, and provision. Um, the other thing that's interesting, if you were to go through and kind of track all of these laws, I think what was helpful for me is that kind of like, obviously the Ten Commandments are already numbered, but I kind of went back through and as I read and heard a Ten Commandment that was reflected, I would just write the number above it. And so it's interesting to kind of track the laws and find out and just see how much they are reflective of the general Ten Commandments. Um, so thought that was helpful. Um, and then... These laws end with a promise that a messenger angel will go before them as they journey. So after this year at Mount Sinai and they journey on to the promised land, God promises that there will be an angel that they are to, um, if they listen and obey, good things and blessings, if they disobey, curses. And so we've heard that language throughout the Old Testament. Um, and it says that... Um, that the angel will go before them and help defeat their enemies. And it says that it will be a slow process, that it will not be one that's fast, but it'll be a slow process. Um, and I think that is to test the faithfulness of Israel as they go to the promised land. And so just like the trials in our life are testing our faith through our journey on to the end of time, that's the length. Why it takes so long is that they might be tested and be seen um, to have faith. Um, so then we come to the last section of our um, study of Exodus in 24. And so we're getting to the last bun. So um, the covenant was offered, covenant accepted in Exodus 24. And so there's a lot that happens here. So just bear with me as we go. There's a couple of verses that I would love help looking up. Would someone look up Luke twenty two twenty? Thanks, Leah. And then someone else Luke twenty or twenty two sixteen. Awesome, thank you. Um, so here we see that the narrative picks back up and it further explains kind of chapter nineteen and kind of bookends this section. So I'm just going to kind of read it in chunks. Talk about what happens. It says then he said to Moses, "Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab." 
and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So here we see that there's kind of a threefold nature of this, and this is going to set us up for what God is going to do in the tabernacle. So that's kind of what happens next in our narrative. And so we see that God's presence is getting continually nearer and nearer, right? You see that in the burning bush when he meets with Moses. Then you see his presence on Mount Sinai, and that even wasn't quite enough. And he wants to continue to get closer to his people in the tabernacle. Then we see in the church time that his spirit will come in us, and then one day that we will be in God's presence fully. Um, and so we kind of see that this is a setup for what's coming, and you'll see that a little bit more as we read on. Um, and so then it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So here we kind of see that the covenant is being finalized. And so we see that Moses has read the words of the law and that now there has been a sacrifice and blood has been sacrificed um, and blood has been shed on behalf of the people. Um, and so we see that blood is required um, for that relationship between God and his people, that he is making for himself a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that relational, that discord that we talked about, that desire of God for his, he wanted that relationship with his people and yet he is holy, is now coming to a point where we're going to see that it can actually come together. It says in verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron and Nabad and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. And so here we see the people, right, their fear caused them not to be able to go in the presence of God because they were afraid that they would die. But they were short-sighted and didn't see that the blood would be spilled on their behalf so that they could get close to God, that they might be able to behold God. And so here we see that it's Moses and the elders and the people are not present, but that God's presence is continually wanting to get closer and that's what sets us up for the tabernacle and for Christ later on. And so we see that this covenant has been made, that the blood has been shed, that that relationship has come to be. And then it goes on to say, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose up with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has the dispute, let him go to them. The, then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. 
The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. One thing that I wanted to point out that I didn't earlier was that it says that they beheld God and they ate and drank. So we've been talking a lot about this idea that salvation is feasting with God. So we see that even in the Passover celebration, that blood was shed, and then there's this relational closeness, this fellowship, and this feasting. And so we see here that the elders of Israel, after the covenant is made by its blood, that they are now feasting with God. And I think this points to the passages in Luke 22, um, talking about the Last Supper before Christ is our Passover lamb that is given. And so this is why the idea of the Lord's Supper is so important, that it is we look back and remember what Christ did on the cross by his blood, and we look forward to feasting on Christ. And we do that communally so that we might know the fellowship that we have with God through his covenant and his shed blood um, with one another as well as with him. Um, would someone read the Luke twenty-two twenty? And 16. And so we see here that even Christ says, this is the new covenant by my blood that we might have salvation. That's through the shedding of blood through Jesus that we might feast and have perpetual feasting with God. Obviously in salvation, we get that partially now, but we look forward to the great feast that we've been talking about, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we might feast on God in his presence forever. Um, and so that's why when we take communion as a church, that we look back to what Christ has done, we look forward to the feast. Um, and so that is why that piece is so important. So then at the end, we see that um, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this also reminds me of Jesus being tempted um, for 40 days and 40 nights before um, he is our sacrificial lamb. Um, and so we kind of see, based on this whole kind of thing, obviously there's a lot of things that we didn't cover. But we see, I think, the biggest part of this is to see that God offered a covenant. He had his terms that the people failed, and yet God provided um, a covenant sacrifice and that blood, shed blood that they might have. Um, that relationship still restored and that that covenant was accepted um, by God on our behalf through Jesus. Um, and so before we end, I wanted to read um, Hebrews 12. Um, it was pretty powerful. I read it today and I was honestly really shocked about how um, much it um, just really clearly tied into this. Um, but it's starting in verse... 18, I'm going to read a big chunk of it. it. says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers vague, that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, 
I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warns them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is consuming fire. And so, the mountain shook, but one day God will shake everything so that the only thing that is left is his eternal kingdom. Um, let's pray.